good to see you. Uh, I'm JD. If we haven't met, I think I've met most of you at this point, but so honored you're here. I get to be the pastor of Christ Church Charlestown. Uh, about four years ago, we, my family relocated here um, to start a church and don't tell our neighborhood, but there's a growing, healthy, new church, a Protestant church in Charlestown that's doing really well and, uh, and loves this community. And I love that. Like, uh, I remember, um, Kelly, you were actually probably one of the first people we met after we had moved here, right? And I remember people telling us, like, no way a new church is ever going to work in Charlestown. Like, it is never going to happen. And if it does, it's only going to be Southerners who end up there who've relocated and, like, most of you, the majority of you this morning are from New England and are open to what God's doing in your life. And I love that. Like, that is the most exciting thing in the world to me. So uh, Nick and I on Friday, we sort of, on Thursday and Friday, we get together and we say, okay, what's coming up this Sunday? What do we need to do? And I always ask, like, do we have enough seats? And on Friday, I think between the two services, Barb, there were 14 people who had signed up. And I was like, man, maybe, uh, maybe uh, we miscalculated here. Like, what's going on? And, and this morning, we've had to turn a couple of people away. So you guys sign up late, uh, which stresses the pastor out. But otherwise, like, you're here. And God is present among us. And I am super excited uh, that you are here. In your chairs, if you didn't see it before, there's a QR code. If you're a QR code user, you could take a photo of that. It's also up here, same code. It'll have the passage of scripture we're going to use today from the Bible. It'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look there in just a moment. Uh, I kind of want to tell you just a story as we get going, before, even before that. If we could. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I remember having sick days. Do you remember, like, did, did anybody have a sick day routine when you were a kid, I grew up in a single parent home, so sick day routine was very specific. In my house, it was blanket and pillow on couch. That was requirement one, like the couch became a bed, which didn't happen at any other time in our house, but on sick day that happened. Then there would be Gatorade or ginger ale uh, on right beside on the coffee table. I'm not sure if you were a ginger ale family or a Gatorade family. I guess it depended on what you had. Uh, but on sick day, you got a special straw to go with it. It was the straw that was one of those bendy straws that curled like this, you know, and it would stick down into the Gatorade. And then there was only one show I remember watching on sick day. I don't know if you had a show you watched on sick day, but in our house, um, it was The Price is Right. Like, you would watch The Price is Right on sick day. It was like, it was sick kids across America, and then everybody else was over 70 who was watching The Price is Right. That was their viewing audience, right? And it wound down every day with Bob, like, oddly telling us to spay or neuter our pets. I never understood why that was going on. And then it would switch to the local news or to soap operas uh, or to, like, court television. I didn't watch any of that, so it was just kind of turn the television off and rest on real sick days where I hadn't just fooled my mom to let me stay home. But every day at, I guess, 11 o'clock, there would be Bob Barker leading people in Plinko and guessing the prices of canned goods or little odd items. And even as a kid, I'd be like, you are so dumb. That does not cost $2.49. That's clearly two seventy-five or whatever. And then I always wanted to spin that big wheel. And you know when somebody would go to spin the wheel and they didn't spin it all the way around and it was like womp womp. Like I never wanted to be that person. I entered into the uncertainty of everyone's uh, journey for sure. And I, I remember Bob 
At the very end, the showcase showdown, I remember Bob saying, all this can be yours if you guess, if, if the price is right, is what he would say, right? Uh, man, that was a, 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 such a powerful phrase, all this can be yours. I remember thinking, all this? You mean a 1990 Datsun, a trip to Cancun, and a CD player, and, and washer and dryer can all be mine if I guess that the price is right? Like, it was amazing. Even better than all this can be yours is all this and more can be yours. Like, now we're getting into my wife's wheelhouse. All this and, and all this can be yours and more is the stuff of infomercials. How many of you were infomercial watchers? Like, my wife had a crush probably on that guy with the big black beard uh, who did all the infomercials, the OxyClean guy. Remember him? Like, not, you know, if you order right now from OxyClean, all this and more will be yours. You'll get two sets of OxyClean. Or do you remember the clapper? Like, you didn't just get the clapper. They would throw in some additional nonsense to entice you into ordering the clap-on clap off uh, light or the Ginsu knives. I remember those. You would get an extra set of Ginsu knives, all this and more if you order right now. Now in our world, like in our world, the world of infomercials and prices right and all and over promising and under delivering. So often we can get this mentality of like all this and more can be yours. And if it seems too good to be true, Usually my experience is that it is. Like, usually my experience is that it is. But the amazing thing about following the God of the Bible, as revealed in Jesus, is that he promises so much to us up front that we can't earn or deserve. This is the crazy thing. Like, Christianity, if you look at it as a religion, it's honestly not that enticing. Like, you know, you're giving up your Sunday morning and you're stopping swearing at the person who cuts you off at traffic. Like, if you see it as religion... But if you see following Christ as relationship, man, it offers an awful lot. It actually promises all this and more when you commit to follow Christ. And so it promises stuff we don't deserve. It promises we can become part of God's family. And that we find that the even more is blessing and relationship and meaning and hope and joy and healing and restoration and future. More of all these things than we would dare ask or imagine. In fact, right before his death, if you turn to the Bible passage, Peter is writing this letter. Now, he's writing from Rome. It's, it's one of the later books that's written in the New Testament. And, um, and Peter is near his death. In fact, he's probably just months at this point from being crucified upside down by the emperor Nero for uh, his faith in Christ. He didn't believe that he was worthy to be killed in the same manner as Jesus. And so he asked to be crucified upside down. And right before he, soon before he's dying, he can literally kind of see the writing on the wall of what's coming. He writes this letter to some churches in Asia Minor and what's today modern day Turkey. And the church was probably at this point about the strongest that it was anywhere in the Roman Empire in this part of Turkey and so, or Asia Minor. And he's giving them a bunch of final instructions. But he kicks it off today with sort of this all this and more kind of a passage. Um, and he's saying God offers us grace and a lot of other, a lot of other things. Uh, and he's going to say, God is going to offer you all this. But there's an and more that comes to following Jesus. And as we're going to see today, it's left a bit up to us. Now, let me say, typically, I become very mindful of the clock. In fact, I asked Nick last week to set a clock and hold me accountable. Now, we're not going to go wicked late today. But God's given me some things i got to tell you, and i got to tell you all of them. 
and you got to hear them as they need to be heard. So I'm going to share the things I got to share in a timely way. But if it comes to pleasing you and disappointing God or pleasing God and disappointing you, I want to make sure that I please the Lord. So bear with me. We may go five minutes longer or so than, than we normally do. Second Peter chapter one. We'll start in verse one. We're going to read 11 verses and I'll read them up front and then we'll walk through them together. Simeon Peter, uh, this was Peter's name. His birth name was Simon. Jesus uh, said, from now on, buddy, I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. It's not that Peter was the founder of the church. Jesus is the founder of the church. It's his bride. Uh, but but uh, Jesus was going to leverage his relationship with Peter and his time with Peter to influence the world. And so from then on, Peter begins to refer to himself as Peter and Simon Peter. So Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those, he's addressing the church in Asia Minor, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May his grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, I don't know if you write in your Bible or if you highlight verses in your Bible, but man, verse 3 is a good one. Verse 3 says, and we'll get back to it in just a moment, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, anything that you will ever need to follow Christ, you have been given by Jesus. That's incredible. You're not without. Like, that's a powerful verse. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is writing to Christ followers, and he starts by telling them several things that form their identity as believers and are given to them by virtue of being part of God's family. And you may have already seen some of those traits as we we're reading through it. These, these traits are in the first three or four verses of, uh, of this passage that we're reading today. Now, let me say that some of you grew up in religious guilt traditions. In religious guilt traditions, there was never enough that you could do to please God. It was always like, if you do these things, if you go to these things, if you say these things, if you don't do these things, then maybe God will be happy with you. And today, if that's like the, the mental framework that you like carry into church kind of like begrudgingly, you're like, oh, I don't want to believe God is like that. I want to give you permission to kind of take that hat off today and lay it to the side. And we're going to see in this passage that that is not how God operates with us. In fact, he doesn't operate with like that with us at all. In fact, he changes our identity. And these verses say he gives us four things most definitely. And if you are a Christ follower, these are yours. And if you are on the fence about becoming a Christ follower, I want to tell you when you make the decision to become part of God's family, 
these things become yours. They're your birthright for the children of God. Number one, faith of equal standing with the apostles. Now let's start there. Peter is telling these believers, they've heard stories of Peter walking on water, Thomas touching the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, James and John and Matthew, you know, feeding the multitudes, all that. They've heard those stories of disciples. They've heard of Paul. In fact, later in 2 Peter 2, Paul, or Peter even says, you've heard of Paul. You can trust his letters. You can trust his character. He's an apostle just like us. These people have heard of these 13 apostle disciples, the earliest men and women who followed Christ in addition to the 12. And Peter is saying, hey, Christians, you have a faith that is just as capable and informed as ours. I've gone in churches and seen stained glass windows of the disciples. Have you ever been in a church and seen those stained glass windows of the saints and disciples? Anybody in those stained glass windows who looks so holy and pristine? Peter writes here and he says, you have the same thing that they have. That's pretty amazing. There's not first-tier and second-tier Christians where the first-tier folks can are missionaries and pastors and martyrs and theologians and the rest are just regular people. And the first-tier people can move mountains and walk on water and pray people out of addictions and lostness and brokenness and can change the world. And the second-tier people are just bound to be married and have paychecks and date and try to scrape by with life. Like, there's no first and second tier, Peter says here. Christian, Christ follower, don't believe a lie that you are anything less than a person of equal standing with Peter and the apostles. You can do pastoral ministry. You can lead people to Christ. You can do the stuff that changes the world like the 12 disciples. You can make a difference because you have the same standing that they had with God. Second thing Peter says that you all Christians have, he says, you guys have an imputed or a given righteousness. Now on our own, we're not good. Most people don't believe this anymore. Most people believe, uh, a guy named George Barna recently surveyed people in churches in America and found out that most Christians today, most church attenders, believe that all humans are basically good. Now, I'm not sure who he surveyed. I don't think he surveyed people with kids. Uh, Here's why. I never had to teach my children to disobey. I never had to teach Noah and Owen to disobey. It came so naturally to them to disobey. I had to train them to be good. It was nat- I don't know what it was like for Oliver and Linus. It was natural for Noah to smack Owen. It was natural for Owen to take the last cookie or cracker when Noah wasn't looking. It is natural for them to, like, uh, in Fortnite, just snipe the other one, pff, dead. And then you just hear screaming, like, just screaming. It's natural for us to do wrong. It's unnatural to do right and to be good. That, the Bible tells us, is imputed to us. It's given to us by the death of Christ. The gospel says that we can't cure our sinfulness. It's so inherent that even a one-year-old throwing a tantrum understands. Anybody watching a one-year-old knows we're not inherently good. But the gospel is that by his death at the cross, at the cross, Jesus takes our sin. He shoulders our sin But that's not all. At the cross, Jesus passes along to us his righteousness. So when God looks at Jesus at the cross, he saw our sinfulness. Now, because of Jesus, when God looks at Kelly or Nicole or Carson or Scott, if you're a Christ follower, when he looks at you, 
God sees the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see you with suspicion or wonder or wonder what you're up to. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus, God declaring us not guilty and giving, imputing to us his goodness. The third thing Peter says we get is all things needed for life and godliness. Let me say it again. You have been given all things needed for life and godliness. You don't need seminary, wouldn't hurt you, but you're not lacking if you haven't been. You don't need a good Christian upbringing. It's great if you have that, but you're not like spiritually maimed if you didn't. And I know Ed's talked to me about his faith upbringing. Carson and I have talked about this. Carson's told me, he said, man, I wish I would have been taught the Bible at a younger age. Like if you didn't get those things, like you're not a second tier Christian. You have now in Christ been given all things needed for life and godliness it's, um, you don't need to know the songs. Like most of you, I assume, probably hadn't heard that song that Nick sang this morning. Like that's okay. You're not second tier anything. You don't have to know the creeds. You don't have to know the moves. Uh, when we pray, you don't have to know. Like, do I cross myself? Do I not? Do I have to get on my knee? Like, if you don't know that stuff, that's okay. God, if you're a Christian, God's given you everything you need for life and godliness. All you need, all those things can be learned. But you're not without. You have all you need. It's all there. We haven't arrived, but we have everything we need for life and godliness. And the fourth thing Peter says is we have divine promises. When we have the word of God and we find a promise that God makes, we can hang on to it. In September, when we were in the park and even carrying over to today, we started a message series called The Beginner's Guide to Predicting Your Unpredictable Future. And we looked at Bible passages over the last two and a half months that basically say this, like if you walk by faith in relationship with God and you sort of obey biblical principles, I can't guarantee how your life's going to go. There's always a pandemic or there's always a 2020 out there, right? But generally, you can kind of see how your life is going to bend and how it's going to go as you follow God by faith. And sometimes the Bible even makes promises. And when we receive these promises, God is leading us somewhere and going to do something. Peter says we have these precious promises from God to help us live by faith. So think about it. We have a new identity. We're new people. We have a new standing. We have a new capability. God's strength, not ours. We have a new worldview and we have new confidence. And none of it is earned or even maintained by our effort. These are all gifts given to us by God and received by faith. So we would think, oh, that's it. Cool. Let's go home. Let's go home. Like God's given us all that. Let's go home. Let's watch some football. Let's take a nap. It's all good. And I wonder if Peter's audience felt that way. I don't know if they did or not. Peter says, all this and more is yours in Christ. But he threw in the and more. I mean, he's going to get to that. And the and more here is stuff for the Christ follower, for the Christian, that we are to make every effort to add to our life. It won't make you more or less Christian. He just says at the end, if you don't add these things, you will become nearsighted. And so I'm going to give you, I think, seven, I think it's seven or so things, I didn't number them, that he says today we need to add, be adding to our faith. Now, before I tell you these things, I need to tell you, especially for the people who grew up with religious guilt, there are three ways that you can approach following God and living by faith as it concerns obedience. The first way you can do it is by a word called legalism. And legalism means that God loves me when I obey, but he doesn't love me when I don't obey. So I better be doing good. This is kind of the, this is not in the Bible. People think it's a Bible verse. It's not the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. 
That's legalism. It's I got to do good. I got to go to church. I got to stop swearing. I got to not cheat on my taxes or my wife or my husband. Like I've got to be a good person. I've got to help old ladies cross the street and all this stuff. And if I do those things, then God will love me. If the weight of those things is more than the weight of my sin or unbelief or disobedience, then God loves me. That's legalism that by the law, God loves me more or less. The second approach to the law, and that is not a biblical approach, by the way. In fact, Jesus uh, called out legalists every time he got a chance. The second approach is antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is a less colloquial kind of word, but it, it, uh, antinomianism basically means that we can throw out the law because we've been loved by God. Because of grace, we can just do whatever we want. I used to pastor a guy who was a tremendous racist. Tremendous racist. And, would, and, and, and he would say stuff that would make my skin crawl, and I wanted to lash out. And I would look at him and say, brother, you cannot say that. You can't think that. What are you doing? And then he would go, man, I'm just playing. But you know, once saved, always saved. And I was like, that is not what that means in the Bible. Like, bro, you have got to quit with those jokes. Like, that is not funny. That is not God-glorifying. You can't save it. You love Christ and hate somebody. He never actually woke up to that, and, um, and, I, and I love him, but I love him with hope that he will change. Grace does not, grace is not cheap. It costs God's son everything. So just like we can't look and think, oh, if I behave enough, then God will love me, we also can't look and say, well, God has given me grace. Jesus died on the cross, so it's all good. I'm going to go have a good time. I'm going to get hammered on Saturday night, and show up for church on Sunday. I'm going to live like a practical atheist Monday through Friday and then show up for church on Sunday. That is abusing grace or antinomianism. The, the, the sweet spot, the right way to do this is to live in grace. This is what Peter is calling those churches to. We don't earn it. We can't maintain it, but we can't disregard it either. For Peter, this is why he says, make every effort to add to your faith. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. It cost the Son of God his life. And if God deemed his Son's life worthy enough to be the price paid so that we get grace, then we need to look at grace in the same way and add to what God has done for us in Christ. And these are the things he calls them to add. He says, add virtue. If you're taking notes on your phone or on paper, you might write that word down, add virtue. Now, virtue is excellence of character. It's behavior showing high moral standards. Personally, for me, I need virtue in how I love Natalie. I need virtue in how I love Noah and Owen. I need virtue in my time management, my finances, my attitude when I'm inconvenienced. Virtue or excellence of character makes me think of a friend of mine named Dennis Nix. Now, Dennis was a retail store manager. He was about 50 years old. He loved his wife, Janie, as well as I've ever seen a man love his wife. He loved his kids who weren't always good, but they were his, and he would have fought for them to the death. He loved his church. There would never be a time that you could call on Dennis that he wouldn't pray or stand up and read scripture. He was a faith hero of mine when I was in my early 20s, and still is to this day. In fact, the day I got married uh, 16 and a half years ago, Dennis and his wife, Janie, sat between my mom and my dad and stepmom because I didn't really want like a brawl to break out. Um, not, that my, not that either of those saints would have caused that, but I wanted Dennis and Janie like there in between all of that because Dennis is a man of virtue. 
And we need to add virtue into our life. Excellence of character. Second, Peter says, add knowledge to virtue. Now, knowledge is an evolving relational word. Like, we can know the Bible sort of in our head. Like, I can tell you today, there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures, 27 books in the New Testament, the biographies of Jesus and the stuff that happens after that. I can quote for you John 3.16, John 10.10, John 14.6, Romans 8.28, Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8. I can quote for you um, Jeremiah 29.11. I can tell you all kinds of stuff about the Bible, but that doesn't mean it's changed my heart. I can also quote for you Shakespeare. I can quote for you Charles Dickens. I can quote lines from Harry Potter. I can definitely quote baseball and basketball stats. I can quote some Hallmark Christmas movies that we've been watching for almost a month now in my house. Like, just because I know something doesn't mean I know something. And Peter says we need to add knowledge, relational knowledge, to our virtue and, uh, and we do this through God's word and reflecting on God and becoming more like him. If you don't know God and his ways and his word, you can. You add that. The third thing he says, add, add self-control to knowledge. This is mastering your emotions and desires and passions. Self-control is self-disciplined, uh, self-discipline and measured restraint. It's not this very Buddhist idea of avoiding pleasures. That's not self-control. Self-control is the ability to enjoy the pleasures of life, but understand where they come from and not be mastered by them. Um, And so we're called to self-control. Yesterday, Natalie was uh, at Starbucks with this other guy. We'll talk about him in a second. And and they're in Starbucks in line, and this guy, this this third guy comes in and cuts in line in front of them. Now, the guy that she's there in the line with, she knows that he is getting frustrated, but he's just been cut in line. And, and for the sake of argument, like we might call this guy JD um, that she is with. She can sense that JD is getting very frustrated. She can feel the heat coming off of his body. And, uh, and JD looks at the man who cut in front of them in line, and I, I just started doing this. Like this man is ordering his coffee, having cut, and I'm just doing this. And she looks at me and gives me that look. Has like your mom ever get like it's sad when your wife gives you the mom look. Like she's like, I'm I'm nodding, I'm doing this at the man. She's doing this at me. Well, the barista sees all of this going down. He sees I've gotten cut in front of in line, and he sees that uh, I'm not. Uh, maybe he saw me nodding my head and that giving me the that, you know, and we get up to order and the guy hands us a gift card for $4. He goes, sir, I saw all that happen. Well, I look at Nat and I'm like, now, aren't you glad I threw that tantrum? (laughs) My tantrum just got you a free coffee next time. You're welcome. Uh, As I'm expressing to her how grateful she needs to be for my immaturity and lack of self-control, God's spirit puts his thumb right on my heart. Has that ever happened to you? And the Lord, not audibly, but just in my soul, was like, you got a free coffee, but you know you were a jerk, and you didn't act like me. And I knew in that moment, before I preached to you about self-control, I need to let you know, I haven't arrived on this. We need, part of what we need to add to our faith is the ability to practice self-control. God saw what I did, 
and he let me know that I haven't arrived. God won't take us against our will and just change us. If we need self-control or virtue or knowledge, it doesn't just sort of like by alien abduction happen to us. We have to add these things to our faith. And I don't know if you need self-control in your sweets or free time or television, phone, spending, exercise, um, relationships, eating vegetables, saving money, living generously or living by faith or reading God's word. I don't know where you need self-control. I know I need, where I need self-control. And I have to add that to my faith. The next thing, add steadfastness to self-control. Steadfastness isn't a word we use much these days, but it means patient, endurance, perseverance, reliability, faithfulness, steadiness. And as one Bible dictionary calls it, a trueness to the end. Steadfastness doesn't give up on projects, and steadfastness doesn't give up on people. And we live in a world now where we give up on people really quickly. We cancel them. And this is not a trait that God's people should have in their lives. We need to do the opposite. From our food to our internet speeds to our traffic to everything else, we just like life faster. Um, By the way, it's why as a culture we have such a hard time taking a Sabbath day. We're too fast. Our hearts are too fast. Even when we have nothing on our schedules, our hearts are going 1,000 miles an hour. And part of following Christ is adding steadfastness and slowing down rather than living always with an unbiblical urgency. God doesn't always operate on our timeline, so we need steadfastness as we walk by faith. The next one, uh, add godliness to steadfastness. Godliness is respect for God that affects how we live. It's holiness and righteousness, but even more, it's like an inner compass, an inner sense of morality that flows from living by the Spirit of God who shows us the way and gives us power and strength to get there. We need to add godliness. Uh, Recently passed away, uh, Christian author and speaker Brennan Manning said this. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Godliness lived out practically and humbly, not church services, not buildings, not coolness, not relevance. Collective godliness will be a compelling fire in our witness. And then finally, let me give you the last two, brotherly affection and agape love. The final items we are urged to add to our repertoire are brotherly affection. That Greek word is phileo. It's where we get the word Philadelphia. It just means brotherly love. Um, There were four types of word for love in the original Greek language, ancient Greek. Uh, This is being a friend who loves like a brother. It's, It's liking people. Like we're called to like one another. Look around. Do you see each other, you can kind of look around, don't breathe on anybody right now, we'll freak everybody out. Like, but look around, like, do you know each other well enough to say that you like each other? Part of church is we want to know one another well enough to like one another as best we can. It's seen and getting to know people, connecting, showing love in friendly and warm ways. And then we're also called to add agape. Now, agape is not like phileo, brotherly love. Brotherly love says, I like you because I know you. Agape love says, I don't even know you, but I love you. And I would lay down my life for you if that's what's required. Because Jesus loved us with agape love. He laid down his life for us. It was agape. It's cross love. It's willing to lay down your life and love the other person. Look around again. Even if you don't know each other and like each other, in Christ we're called to agape one another. To be willing to... Even if we don't know the other person, if they don't deserve it, if they haven't earned it, if they're not even likable, we're called to love 
one another. This is the ethic of Christ's followers. We should be judged by the world based on our love, not our politics, not what we give back into the community, not what we say we are, not how we look. We should be judged by how we love as Christians and as a church. We are capable of this love because Christ died for us in agape, and now his spirit of agape lives in us. God doesn't show us love and say best of luck, but rather the Bible says he takes up residence in us and empowers us to love. The best lovers on planet earth, and I don't mean lovers in the romantic sense, I mean lovers, people who love well, are the people who don't try to love, but they realize how much God has loved them and done for them, and love flows freely out of them. It is not an outside-in love, it is an inside-out love. I've been getting to know my friend Howard over the last month, and, uh, and this is one thing that we've continually talked about, is how lasting change in our hearts and our lives happens when God changes our hearts and then our behaviors, our attitudes, our emotions. It starts with the heart and with God's agape being poured into us because Jesus has brotherly loved you. Jesus likes you. I want to tell you something today and hear it. Like if you take a note, pull your phone out, whip this out. Jesus loves me, period. Jesus likes me, period. Some people think Jesus loves them. They just don't think Jesus likes them. And Jesus does both for you today. Let me say a couple of things to everyone here and everybody who's watching on Facebook Live. If you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, you're exploring, you're figuring it out, uh, maybe you're even religious, but you would say, I don't really have a relationship with God in Christ like you're talking about. Let me say a couple of things to you. These are great traits for you to aspire to. If you're not quite there yet, all these traits are great traits to aspire to, but they will not make you right with God. They don't have the power to do that. They don't make Christians right with God either, so they can't for you. If you are closed off right now to Christ, I want to encourage you, seek to implement those. Add virtue, add knowledge, add self-control, add godliness. Those are great traits. The world will be a better place if you and I all added those things. Like, over the last year, our culture has gotten so amped up and toxic that if we could all implement those seven or eight traits, our world would be better. Our horizontal relationships would be more ordered and peaceful. But that would not save us. The most important relationship is the vertical one between us and God and the peace of mind that we all need. And that will only be secured and strengthened by Christ. Further, if you're not a Christian, if you're not yet a Christian, you're exploring, you're thinking about it. Maybe you think, even if I were a Christian, I couldn't do those things. I couldn't add those things. That is a rational conviction. I agree. If you think you can do those things, I think you're a little delusional. You can't do it in your power. Neither can I. But God can. And for the people who receive Christ and the stuff that Christ gives, you will find the power to implement these traits to your life. And finally, and this one makes me the most sad, but it's the most true. If you're here today, not a Christian, and you think to yourself, I know a bunch of Christians and they don't do this stuff. Let me say to you, I'm sorry. I know a lot of Christians too who don't do this stuff. Let me also say, I agree with you. I've seen it as well. People who take the name of Jesus and don't live like Jesus or love like Jesus. Let me say to you finally, I am guilty of that. 
And I could say, oh, I've got it all together, and I would know that's a lie. And I could also minimize it and say, once saved, always saved, it's grace, da-da-da, and that would be cheap. Some of us have been hurt very deeply by people who claim to be Christians but didn't live like it. And if that's your journey and your story and you're kind of on the fence about following Christ because you haven't seen it done well, I want to tell you that I don't have it all together. And if you hang around here long enough, I will disappoint you as well. But in the disappointing, I will do my best to point you to Christ and say that he is a better lover and a better friend than I will ever be. And he is faithful. And I am willing to be exhibit A of my brokenness. But I'll tell you at the same time, he's changing me. I'm not who I was. I'm not who I'm going to be. I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I was either. God's grace is changing me, and he's changing you. So if you're not yet a follower of Christ, let me tell you that your hope is not going to be found in finding Christians who get it just right. Your hope will be found as you come to Christ. He is the only perfect example. He is the only best friend. He is the only perfect lover. And Christians... As I get ready to pray for us today, let me say we're going to need prayer on this. There's a lot of sermons we walked out of here and thought, oh, if I can, I'm, I'm going to give 1% more. I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. I'm going to do this. And we can do that. And we don't need sometimes the power of God for some of the things we hear in church. But on this one, we're going to need the power of God. We're going to need the fuel of God's spirit living in us to add virtue and self-control and knowledge and godliness and brotherly affection and cross love. We're going to need God's help for all of those. You can't fake it. God sees your hearts. In Starbucks yesterday, I've been married long enough uh, to Natalie. I don't know how it is for the married couples. Um, I've been with Natalie long enough that we were about three feet apart ordering coffee. And she can feel the heat coming off of my neck. I'm so mad at this man for cutting in front of me in line. He's just building. It's like watching a tea kettle boil up, right? And she's like, you need to chill out. She's talking to me like, you need to. Her eyes are all big and her teeth are gritted, right? You can't fake godliness. Like, in that moment, I can't act like I'm okay. The heat coming off of my neck is telling I'm not. And my wife can spot it. You can't fake godliness. The God whose spirit lives inside of you knows you too well to fake it. We come to church, we try to fake it. We try to fake it in other areas. You can't fake it with God. You can't manipulate it either. Like, you can't manufacture it. This is divine stuff. It can't be done quickly or alone. It's going to take a lifetime in a church to help us become these people that Peter is calling us to become But this is the work of following Christ. It's gospel work. And this is the work that will lead us to become a peculiar people, a compelling people, a people who want, a people who people want to hear of the hope we have in Christ. Let me read one, one more time to you real quick, how Peter concludes this section. Let me kind of just read it over you, if I might. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God... 
Will you give us grace as we, your people, seek to increase in these traits we've just listed? We thank you for the first four verses, all that's ours in Christ. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We can't maintain it. We can't keep it. But God, you've given it to us. It's our birthright if we are in Christ. But these other ones, God, will you help us as we seek to increase in them? Will you keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful and nearsighted? We don't want to be blind. We don't want to be forgetful. We want the way we live, the way we pursue you, the way we read the Bible, the way we pray like warriors, to, the way we give, the way we serve, the way we go on mission, the way we share what we all believe to be evidence of our calling and your salvation. We want it all to speak loudly of who we are and who you are. And Lord, we don't want to fall. Keep us from falling into sin. Keep us from falling into unbelief. Keep us from falling into apathy. I pray that over each person sitting here today. I pray we'll do our part also and encourage and challenge and rebuke and even warn one another as we do this together. No one can live this alone. And God, for the people here who are exploring following Christ, I pray that maybe today some of them would turn from their sin and trust you, that they would just say, God, I'm not looking to Christians and I'm not looking to the church, but I'm looking to you for hope and meaning and salvation and forgiveness. And God, I thank you that as a good father, you receive us when we do that. Lord, we're going to need every bit of your spirit and every bit of one another and every bit of the word and every bit of everything available to do this and become the people you've called us to be. So it is in Jesus' mighty and willing and loving name that I pray. Amen. Amen.